certainly thank you and praise you for your word. What a, an incredibly rich treasure it is. And uh, just thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to, to get a hold of a Bible in our, in our country. That's just easy to do, to be able to find uh, tools to help us study it. And Lord, we're without excuse uh, when it comes to not knowing your word. So we just ask that this time, Lord, would glorify you, that um, we would each learn and grow, that each one of us, Lord, would be changed to become more like Jesus and less like who we are right now. We just thank you and we praise you for this time together. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a degree in forest management. One of our professors said, you know, anybody can get up and present a lecture on something they don't know much about. That's why I'm here today. Uh, the title of this message is, Do I Love the Way God Wants Me to Love? The answer is no. And after this studying for this message, you can each answer with that same exact answer. This is um, overwhelming. Um, I really intended to nail down some key things. And I, I did try to do that about what scripture says about love. Love is evident from Genesis 1. God created all things. And on the sixth day, he created man and all the animals. And he made sure Adam named all the animals and you'll, you'll find in Genesis 1, he didn't find a helper suitable for him. So God made woman. And he knew man's love needed others to love, but he also did this out of love for man. This perfect world that God made had a man and a woman, had male and female animals, it had perfection, everything that was needed. He provided food for him. And another very loving thing is he gave man choice. They could choose not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and to experience the death that resulted. But he, he loved man enough to give him choice. Man chose wrong. We're very good at that. You may be able to relate. So today I can't really extensively dig into scriptural observation, interpretation, and application that we like to do by using exegesis, uh, extracting what the word says. What does it say? What does it mean? What does it mean to me? Um, we're, we're used to that kind of a message here. I can't do that on love in just one hour. So what will we do? You read in scripture, and we'll look at that verse later on, God is love, okay? 
It's a complex, deep, infinite subject because it is God. He is a complex, deep, and infinite God. So what are we going to do? Well, I thought I'm going to make this more of a pep rally. I want to encourage you in the kind of God, <laughs> the kind of love, the way God wants us to love. Um, as we see in various places in Scripture, people are stirred up by way of reminder, I think is the way Peter put it. Um, so I've tried to include key references in your outlines, but I'm going to bring up a whole bunch more Scripture. Your thumbs are going to be very busy. Maybe Robin will take her little thing around so you can put some of that wax on your thumb and turn pages quickly. I want us to see the breadth, get exposed to, I'll put it that way, the breadth of love as God presents it in his word. And hopefully when we're done, you will be not confused, but encouraged to look into scripture and, and just find that richness and that depth of love. So what am I talking about when I use the word love? There's two words in Greek that I want to focus on here. One of them is agape or agapao, and that is means, you look it up in Strong's, it means to prefer, to have a preference for, and especially preferring to do what God's will is. It's the kind of love God has for us, and we'll see that. What we've kind of come through the years to, to call this is to define it as sacrificial devotion. You're devoted to something, someone, enough to sacrifice for that. Maybe you're giving up one of your favorite football team playing while we're doing this. That's okay, you've got it on a DVR, right? But you're sacrificing, you know. Um, so that's, that's the one. Agape is how I'm going to refer to it. It's got many different forms. Greek is a very precise language, and I'm just amazed at how many words come to that root, agape. The other one is phileo. It's brotherly love. It's those who are beloved. It's the kind of love you have for a friend. It's not less important. It's different in its breadth and its meaning. Um, phylos um, means beloved, and adelphos means brother. It's the word that William Penn um, got out of scripture to name the city of Philadelphia. Phila is that friendship, love. Delphia is brother. Brotherly, it's called the city of brotherly love. That's why he named it that. That's how I remember the difference in the two. Philadelphia, oh, that's a town, city of brotherly love. Okay, I was stationed back east in the service, so that one works for me. In the inter, interlinear, uh, it's often translated dearly loved. So, like I say, it's not lesser, 
It's just kind of a different scope. But the greatest of these is love, as we see in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. That is agape, and it is really the greater love. So let's, let's look at this a little bit. Look, if you would, first, if you have a Bible, um, I, I think you'll want it because you want to make notes in it and things like that. But let's look in the book of John, chapter 21. And we're going to do this quite a bit. So I want to look at verses 15 through 17. And I want to show you this because this is where Scripture points out a difference. Our translations don't. I don't know what's wrong with the translators. But John chapter 15, or John chapter 21, verses 15 through 17. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, this is, Simon Peter has already denied Jesus three times. And he went and wept. He was really hurt by that. And Jesus says, Simon Son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my lambs. Every translation I've seen, that's how it, it reads words to that effect. Let me tell you what the Greek says. Simon, son of John, do you agape me more than these? Do you sacrificially love me more than these? Peter responds, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. I phileo you. I love you as a dear brother. He asked him again. Second time, verse 16. Simon, son of John, do you agape me? He said to him, um, Yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. Why is he answering with a different word? There's differences here. My thought is Peter obviously didn't love him sacrificially because he wasn't willing to sacrifice uh, by saying he was one of them when they asked him, aren't you one of his disciples? No. He cursed and swore and said he wasn't. He denied the truth out of his own motivations. We don't know. Third time, verse 17, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you... Or phileo me. This time he asks him, do you phileo me? And he's hurt. Look at his response. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you phileo me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I phileo you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. So there is a difference and again, I don't know why the translators just use the word love in English. They should be clarifying that, but they don't. But I use that passage because I want you to understand there's a difference in these words in how they're used and the, and the purpose for which they're used. So as we dig into this, we'll be looking at these and I'll point out which one we're looking at as we go. So let's look at God's love, his agape love for us. It's revealed many places in Scripture, in many ways. Here are a very few examples of what it looks like. And I'll tell you right now, you may be able to think of better examples than I brought up. 
you can think of many, many more. I am telling you, this book is absolutely filled with God's love for us. It is a love letter to us. So I, I was blown away. I really didn't think this would be this hard of a study. <laughs> but God's love is nothing new. I want to look at a weird example, and you're going to go, how did you get that? Look at Ezekiel 33, verse 11. Uh, Ezekiel 33, verse 11. It's right there after Lamentations. Thirty-three, eleven. Um, so, verse thirty-three, two. Just to give you some context, the son, of, uh, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, "Son of man, speak to the sons of your people, and say to them, If I bring a sword upon a land, and the people of the land take one man from among them and make him their watchman, and he sees the sword coming upon the land." And he blows on the trumpet and warns the people. Then he who hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, and a sword comes and takes him away, his blood will be on his own head. But if the trumpet going on, if the trumpet isn't sounded, the blood is on the head of the watchman. And Ezekiel's being basically appointed as a watchman over Israel. He is to pass on the prophecies God gives him. He is to warn the people of what's coming. Verse 11, God's saying, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. What would you call that? What's his relationship with the wicked? Compassion. He cares about them. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. He wants the wicked to become righteous. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? So he's talking to the house of Israel, and he's telling them, I don't want you to die. You're wicked. You're rebellious. I take no pleasure in that. But he is a holy and just God. And you will get what you deserve in the end. If you trust in Christ, you won't get what you would deserve. You will get eternal life, which we do not deserve. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. So, I find that here the rich, wicked and the righteous um, are, com um, are compared. God wants them both to repent and to come to him in that passage. Could he say that about the wicked if he didn't love them? God cares about them. So love isn't mentioned there, but you see the reality of God's love for mankind presented there. In the Old Testament still, let's go to Isaiah 63, verse 9. A couple books to the left. 
This is um, confession of God's people. And in verse 9, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his mercy, he redeemed them. And he lifted them and carried them all the days of old. Talking about his people, the Israelites. And if you're a student of the Old Testament, you know the Israelites were always supposed to keep their doors open to proselytes is one term. To non-Israelites were totally welcome. They were to be a light to the Gentiles, as he told Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant. Look at Isaiah 53, 5-3. A few pages to your left. I want to read all of it. This is one the Israelites, the Jews, often don't include in their Bibles. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, his stripes, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence." nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Look at this. Our loving God, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, talking about Christ, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities, their sins. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded. He stepped in for us. 
those who are transgressors. There's many more examples of God's love. He banned Adam and Eve from the tree of life when he kicked them out of the garden because they had eaten of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And instead of living forever in their eternal spiritual death, um, he kicked them out of the garden so they couldn't tree of, eat of the tree of the knowledge or of life. Um, and others, he judged Israel when they needed discipline for disobedience. He loved them. He wanted them to obey, but he's just. He will discipline for disobedience. Let's look at God's love for us and one you probably don't have to turn to, John 3.16. Anybody ever heard of that verse? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God so loved, that's agape, okay? Romans 8, I'm not going to just settle with a few things. I want to look at what God's love for us looks like. God um, gives us Romans 8, 37 through 39. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us, agape. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love, agape, of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He clearly loves us, right? Ephesians 5.25. We're going we're gonna to nail this down. Ephesians 5.25. Often referred to for... Um, <laughs> It, it fell out of my Bible somewhere. Oh, there it is. Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives. And he's telling us a particular way. Just as Christ also loved the church, agape, in both cases, and gave himself up for her. Was Christ sacrificially devoted to the church? Yeah, he gave himself up for her. We'll talk about this more when we get to husbands. Um, moving right along, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Just a few pages to your right. Have this attitude. Talking about attitude here, okay? Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with, a th with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. 
Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Sooner or later, everyone will acknowledge Jesus Christ is Lord. But my point here is we're to have the same attitude in ourselves, to empty ourselves for the sake of others, which is what Christ did. 1 Timothy 3 Verses 3 through 6. I'll get there here. I'm sorry, 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 6. I had it right in my notes. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between uh, God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. Look at 2 Peter 3.9 really quickly as well. Right after Hebrews to your right is 2 Peter. And 3 verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God didn't create hell for man. He created hell for the devil and his angels, and you'll see that in Scripture. But you find in Matthew 7... Let's look at that. Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14. And you can be writing these down if you don't have time to look them up. Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. God's made the way possible for all. As we saw in 1 Timothy and 2 Peter, God wants no one to perish, but many will, because he loves us enough to give us choice. He doesn't want mindless robots. One more point on, on God's love for us. Notice that this is kind of a, what I would call, what mathematicians would call a binary system, okay? You only have two choices. You can only, it's like electricity. Either it's on or it's off, okay? Um, he, he gave us only two choices. Love him, don't love him. His system towards us is only one. He loves us. Okay? But within that love, he is just. Part of his, 
Part of his attributes is, is he's holy and he is just. And when we don't do things the way he told us we need to do them, and we're without excuse, we have, we have his word, we have creation that, that testifies of him. When we don't do things the way he says, there will be consequences. So our responses are binary. Yes, we trust you. No, we don't. Um, so obedience brings rewards. It always has right from the beginning. Disobedient, disobedience brings consequences. Very, very simple. It's not, it's not rocket science. And God's love for us is clear. It's evident in so many places in scripture. But what does he say? What are a few things he says about our love and it's agape love for him. Look at Matthew 22, verse 37. Some scribe, lawyer of the day, was trying to trick him and um, ask him a question, testing him, verse 35. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? What's the most important thing for us to obey? I'm a lawyer. I already know the answer to this question. <laughs> I'm going to ask you, what do you think? What does he say? Verse 37. And he said to them, you shall love, that's agape, the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. Now, we read on from there, but that's uh, reflected also in Mark 12, 30, if you want to write that down, and in Luke 10, 27. Okay? Christ makes it clear, this is the great, the foremost, the preeminent, the commandment. And he, and he goes on, I want to read in verse 40 of Matthew 22, on these two commandments, love the Lord and love your neighbor, um, depend the whole law and the prophets. That's what the whole Old Testament is about, if you think about it. It all focuses. He gave us ten commandments, but they can easily be summarized in these two. You'll see each one of those ten fits within these two. And he says, this is the most important. And he makes note of the second most important, which is to love your neighbor. And we'll get to that one. So, it's quoted from Deuteronomy 6, where the Hebrew word for love is translated to agape in Greek. Let's look at Deuteronomy 6 real quick. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And I didn't write that. Uh, start in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Um, so as from the, the Septuagint, which was um, scholars from the 
Jewish community, they, they think it may have been six scholars from each of the 12 tribes or something close to that, roughly 70 or 72. LXX is how it's referred to. Oftentimes you'll see that in footnotes and things on your Bible. <clears throat> and that just means the 70, which is the book that 70-some translated the Old Testament into Greek. And so it's reliable. These are Hebrew-speaking people, Greek-speaking people that translated the Old Testament into the Greek. It affirms so much of what we believe about the Old Testament. Um, so anyhow, what, would sac- what should sacrificial devotion to God look like? Well, we saw that in Matthew 22. With all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. So what do they mean by heart? It, it's your inner man. It, it's, it's what we are devoted to. It's what we care about. It's what or whom we trust. It, it kind of carries that. How do you describe it? It's our heart. It's our heart, right? Look at Proverbs 3. And this is, this is amazing to me. This is Solomon writing Proverbs, writing to his son. He says, my son, do not forget my teaching. And then, of course, this is inspired by God. We, we're assured of that in the New Testament. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For lengths of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. What will do that? Keeping his commandments. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Gives us some insights into kind of how do we love with our heart. Well, here's Proverbs 3 lays out a good example for you. What about your soul? It's often referred to as your mind, your will, and your emotions. There's places in scripture where it seems to be synonymous with spirit, but other places where they're definitely mentioned differently. We'll look at that a little bit. On your soul, let's look at 1 Corinthians 15. And, and again, I, I want to remind you, this is, there's an overwhelming amount of information on, on love in Scripture. So 1 Corinthians 15, verses um, 45 through 49. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last man, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. 
However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also those who are heavenly. And just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So it's what makes us, your soul is what makes you who you are. Um, Jim likes to use a lot of puns. That's, that's part of my soul. I don't know if that'll continue on in heaven. For some of you, I'm sure it can't because heaven's a wonderful place. Yeah, pun free. Yeah, no pun zone. But your soul's what makes us who we are. Am I humble? Am I patient? Am I gracious with others? Am I known for being trustworthy with possessions or knowledge about someone? We, you know, it's, it's who we are. Mind, will, and emotions uh, often is what's used to describe it. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5. And get some insights in what scripture says about the soul. 1 Thessalonians 5. The four, the five books beginning with T are, um, are in alphabetical order there, just before Hebrews. Um, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So soul is something that's going to live on. I don't know if the puns will or not. Sorry, Paul, Mark, others. <laughs> Hebrews 4.12, just a few pages to your right. Hebrews 4, chapter 12, or chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There's apparent differences between spirit and soul. Um, our spirits are eternal. I, I believe our souls will live on with us as well. This is just fascinating to me. So, what is this? We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, our soul, and our mind. What does scripture say about our mind? It gives us some insights what that means. It's what we dwell on when we think. You have a few minutes, what do you think about? What we think about whenever we have time to consider things, if you will. So let's look at um, Philippians 4, verse 8. See what our mental occupation is, what we do mentally. And like learning the truth. Let's look at Philippians 4, verse 8. Let 
So finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute or reputation, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. He tells us what to do with our mind. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What's, well, let me see if I had other, oh, I did. Look at 1 Timothy 4.15. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 15. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress may be evident to all. What is he saying? Verse 13. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture to exhortation, encouragement of others, if you will, and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed upon you through the prophetic utterances with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. This, this is what he's telling us. Have, have your mind doing. It's also learning and knowing God's word. I'm not going to read it, but I want you to write down Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is the longest one in the Bible. Okay, I'll read it all. We'll be done about 5, 30, or 6, or 9. But Psalm 119, um, it's an acrostic, it's called. There are, it's divided, if you look at it, right at the start, Aleph. Well, that's the first letter of the Greek um, the, the, the Hebrew alphabet. Thank you. First letter of the Hebrew alphabet. There are um, 20, what did I say, 22? Ah. Anyhow, each letter has eight verses behind it. Each of those verses starts with that letter. Okay, it's, it was to help the young Hebrew kids memorize Psalm 119. You can do it too. So you have Aleph and you have Beth. And so there's 176 verses. And only three of those verses do not refer to God's word in some form or another. God wants us knowing his word. All right? So our mind, what should it be occupied with? And his word. Memorize his word. Dwell on it. Think about it. Um, look at 2 Timothy 2.15. What does that say? We're going to get this one again. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Be diligent. What does diligent mean? Work at it means it's stronger. It means make every effort. Okay? Make ev be diligent. Make every effort to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed at what? 
handling accurately the word of truth. Are you diligent about that? And we need to stand firm on what is right. Again, what do we do with our mind? We use it to filter things, to figure things out. What is right? What is wrong? I want to do what's right. 1 Corinthians 15 again. Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, Paul writing to the Corinthians, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Wow. So what about our strength? We've talked heart, soul, mind, now strength. It's what we put our effort into. You've got, you've got physical strength. Um, what do you do with that? How do we put our effort into loving the Lord in this? Well, I would say James chapter 2 is probably a good start. Again, you find this kind of thing all through Scripture. But two, I'm going to read verses 14 through 16. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. What are you doing in your efforts toward God? Now here he's talking about towards people, but he tells us with all our strength, how do we serve God? Serving others, that's a part of it. But do you, do you make effort to study his word? To assemble with others who are studying his word? These are fascinating things to me. Um... Look at John 14, verse 15, about our love for God. What does it look like? John 14, I'll get there. Verse 15. What does he say? Jesus is speaking here. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So what does that mean if you don't keep his commandments? You don't love him because he said if you love me you will keep my commandments he didn't say you should you will Proverbs 3 um, we looked at that one above and 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 um, and what do we see here it's talking about wisdom as we saw, right? Um, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. He is um, talking about wisdom here. 
And he, he says two or three places in, in uh, the Proverbs or more that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of wisdom. When we looked at John 21, Peter's asked, Peter, do you agape me? Lord, you know I phileo you. Peter was honest about his love for God. But he also saw the need and, and demonstrated it on through the rest of his life to, to love the Lord with that sacrificial devotion, with that agape love. And so... Are we honest with God about our love for him? Are we willing to let that permeate everything else we do? But there's another dimension of love I'd like to look at. Is our love for others. Turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 8. I'm sorry, Romans 13, verse 8. Verses 8 through 10. Owe nothing to anyone except to what? Love one another. Agape. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Hmm, we've heard that somewhere, right? Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. So, that brings us to our, our love for our neighbor. So, we'll talk about who our neighbor is, but in, in general, look at First John 4. And, and <laughs> I apologize for so much back and forth, but I want you to see this is from God's word. It's all right there. It's all there for us. First John 4, 7 through 21. Um, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us. In other words, it was God's love through us, if you will, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the fulfillment, the full payment for our sin. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Okay? The word ought is we owe it to love one another because of what God has done. He's, he's explaining all that right there. But let's keep going. No one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. 
Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love, why? Because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. Any exceptions mentioned there? No. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. If I say I love God but I hate my brother, I am a liar. Is that clear? Our command is if we love God, we should love our brother also. And you can also look at John 13, 34 and 35. Another, another example. Well, let's do it. I want to look at that one. John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you. Who? Jesus is speaking here. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is important. This is very important to Christ. And I want you to be reminded, always look at the context. Sometimes it's talking about love for certain group or a certain group of people. Um, other times, it's, it's a general, no, this applies wherever you go. Dig that out of the context. I didn't have time to dig into that um, and only present it in an hour. So, so in, in, John, in, in general, um, <clears throat> if we love God but don't love our brother or neighbor, if you will, or hate my brother, I'm a liar. In this case, it is brother. So what about neighbors? Back in Matthew 22, we have the second commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? And that's also in Mark 12, 31 and Luke 10, 27. So who is our neighbor? He was asked when he presented that. And what was his answer? Luke 10, what's that? Okay, in this case, his answer was the Good Samaritan, as we call it. And he related that story. The Good Samaritan, Luke 10, you find that in Luke 10, 29 through 37, did what was right before God. Samaritans and Jews were not on friendly terms. Okay? There's examples of that today. 
Islam and evangelicals, Democrats and Republicans. You know, there's people that don't get along well. But he took care of him because he had a need. And when you, when you really dig into the references to neighbor, it's, it's um, anyone God brings across your path. That's your neighbor. That's, that's whom you are to love as Christ loved. He loved him enough to die for him. Are you willing to do that? So let's, let's talk about that. This could be slaves serving their masters. It can be your family. It can be your friends. Anybody. But let's look at family. Colossians 3. And in Colossians 3... We'll look at 17 through 21. I'll get there yet. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, Love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. So let's look at husbands. We saw the Ephesians 5, verse um, 25. Let's look at that again. Back in Ephesians, a couple books back. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up. For her. Look at verse 28. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. The two become one kind of comes to mind there when we think about that, right? Um, Colossians talked about the whole family. So we're looking at the husbands. Christ gave himself up for the church. Husbands, are you giving yourself up for your wife? He says to. If you don't, why not? It's between you and the Lord, but think about that. Let's move on. Oh, and here's a question there. <laughs> why does God have to tell husbands to agape their wives? Because we're not good at it. Right? Okay, let's look at wives. Wives are to, told in Titus 2.4 to phileo their husbands. Why are wives told to like their husbands? Look at Titus chapter 2, verse 4. Verse 3 is where it starts. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good that they may encourage the young women they're to encourage the young women to phileo their husbands to love their children to be sensible pure pure workers at home why do wives have to be told or taught to love their husbands as a friend or brother come on guys answer this Because they're not very likable? Oh, good answer. We do things that are not likable by our wives. Okay? 
God tries to reinforce what we need reinforcement on. Guys, love your wife unconditionally, sacrificially devoted. Wives, like your husbands, if I might really simplify it. Love them as a dear friend and a brother. Wives find it easy to love their husbands sacrificially. They do so much for their husbands, sacrificing many things that they would love to have otherwise. Think about that. Then he says, children, obey your parents. This is the command with a promise, it says. In, in, in Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, I'll read that real quick. I'll read it quicker and I can find it. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And it quotes uh, the Old Testament, honor your father and mother. That's one of the what? One of the commandments, right? Uh, which is the first commandment with a promise. What is the promise? That it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. He's got it all laid out. Here's what needs to happen to have the world right, if you will. Um, at our men's retreat, we saw a video calling men to be the husbands and the fathers God wants us to be. Because if you're a messed up man, as they say, in a, mess, in a, in a messed up family, you're going to mess up that family. And if you're in a messed up family in church, you're going to mess up that church. And if you're in a messed up church in a community, you're going to mess up that community. And it goes right on. That's what the problem is with the world. Believers have not done their jobs. And I'm among them. So anyway, he also talks to slaves and masters. Colossians 3. I grabbed too many pages here. In Colossians 3, we see verses 22 through 25. Slaves in all things. Now, slaves was how you had workers in that day. I like to think of this as employees and supervisors. I'm going to try and read it that way. Employees in all things obey those who are your supervisors on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart. Why? Fearing the Lord. That's your motivation. Why? Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing. Be aware that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. When I learned this, I had an extremely difficult boss that I hated. Made a big difference when I went in and apologized. Said, I haven't been, I haven't been doing what God wants me to do as an employee of yours. I found out later he was trying to get me out of a special training, which was critical to my career because I had a bad attitude. When I put it in his lap, he turned beet red. 
And he says, I don't, I don't know what to do. And he told me, I'm trying to get you out of that class. And I said, well, I've been wrong. Will you please forgive me? He's a non-believer. He didn't know if he could. That's understandable. But the ball was in his court. I laid my case out. I said, I've been wrong. Um, and I told him, it's not you who I serve. It's, it's the Lord Jesus Christ whom I serve. And I want to do that right under your supervision. It makes... It works in the way the world doesn't think it would ever work. God's ways are perfect. So the, the whole thing with servants and slaves and masters and all that kind of stuff, love isn't talked about there, but it's implied. It's your love for Jesus Christ that is your motivation. It's your reason for even doing anything. There's no job that exists anywhere in the world that doesn't exist for this, the simple purpose of making the supervisor successful. I don't care if it's president of the United States, if the voters aren't successful, he'll be voted out. They're to make the voters accessible. Pastors in a church, accessible, successful. Pastors in a church want us to succeed in Christ-likeness. That's why that job exists. Ephesians 4, 11, pastors and teachers given... Why? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. They're not the ministers, we are. Do we get it? Let's move on. <laughs> Look at Colossians 4. We're right there. Verses 5 and 6. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of your opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. He has a relationship instruction for us here with outsiders, people not in the church, if you will, unbelievers. And believers. 1 John 3.16, let's look at that. We're running out of time. I was afraid this would happen. I wouldn't say I knew it would happen. I tried really hard to make this work. And I've only got three more pages, so we're in good shape. Where was I? First John 3.16. Look at this. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Are you laying down your life? Are you sacrificially devoted to the body of believers? I'm not. I wish I was. This stuff is huge. God has made it real clear. In Colossians 3.13, we're to bear with and forgive one another. Romans 12, verses 9 and 10, we are to be devoted to one another in brotherly love, that phileo. Uh, Ephesians 4, we are to humbly, gently, patiently be patient with, lift up, to endure one another in love. That's agape love. We're to walk in Christ, we're to walk in love as Christ loved us in Ephesians 5 and Philippians 2. We're to not be quarrelsome, but we're to be kind to all. 
skilled in teaching. Going back to what I started with, that professor said, anybody can talk about anything for an hour because you can go find enough information to talk about it and just present it. It takes someone who knows the subject to pare it down and get you the key points, the salient part of that subject and tell you about it. And that's where I haven't done a very good job in my opinion but I'm hoping you're, you're getting enough exposure to what's going on in Scripture that I'm hoping you're feeling as guilty as I do about how you love others. That's what I'm hoping. We're not very good at it in our culture. It's all about me. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. So... 1 Corinthians 13, and then we'll, I'll ask a couple of questions and we'll wrap, out, wrap up. 1 Corinthians 13. And I want to read one through eight. Oops. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but I do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I'm worthless if I don't have love. And if I have the gift of prophecy and I know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all the faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I am useless. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. What is love? This is where love is defined by God. Agape love is defined right here. Circle it, whatever, verses four through eight. Love is patient. Are you patient with others that you're having trouble with? Love is kind. Same question. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. I remembered when he did that. He doesn't get anything from me. It's not right. He said it does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Are you doing that? Love never fails. Has your love ever failed? If, if we realize from Scripture that God is love, you see that in 1 John 4, verses 8 and 16, God is love. He tells us what love looks like in 1 Corinthians. We're to be like Christ. And I, in, in looking at all this, I'm realizing I am not loving as God wants me to. To answer that question on the top of the outline.
are you? Are you loving God the way he wants you to love him? Heart, soul, mind, and strength with obedience. Are you loving those in your life who are causing you trouble the way God wants you to love them? Are you loving the spouse of yours the way God wants you to love them? Are you loving those in the church the way God wants you to? Are you loving your enemies the way God wants you to? I don't like this current person in power, president, governor, whoever. Okay? Lord, I pray for their failure. I pray for them every day that they would fall, that they'd be miserable, right? No, Christ loves them enough to die for them. Pray for their spiritual success. What could change things more than having these, what many of us consider enemies of our state, coming to know the Lord? Would that change anything? How do you pray for your enemies? How do you love your enemies? I want us to think about that. He desires none should perish. For God so loved the world, the whole world, that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. Do you understand the most evil, vile person in all of history Christ died for if they'd only repent, if they'd only turn to him and trust him? That's amazing. Let's try to love as God wants us to. And, and I really encourage you, and we'll talk about how to do that a little more next week. Get into scripture. This is where these are timeless truths. It's stuff God inspired and it will be eternal. It's the, the standard of measure we'll live by eternally. It's not something passing. It's not some invention of man. God Put it together for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. We pray, Lord, that um, each one of us would, would grow in our love for you especially and in our love for one another and in loving as you would have us to. Not sacrificing the truth by any means, Lord, but standing, standing firm out of our love for you. Being men and women who are devoted to you, who care very much about doing the right things. May we be in, in prayer often for our enemies, but especially, Lord, for our fellow believers and in praise for, to you. We just thank you and praise you for this time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.